0: 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, last week, Tom Icom, who's the executive pastor here, walked you through verses 1 through 3. Uh, and if you've been with us for any length of time this series, you know that 2 Corinthians is a letter where Paul is under attack. Paul is being questioned. And what is being questioned, specifically about Paul, is his competence. Is he up for the task that is set before him. Is he really equipped to be the apostle to the church in Corinth? Is he really equipped uh, to be the minister of God to the Gentiles? Is he really the person for the job? There's been some people who have crept into the church in Corinth who have called that into question and said, Paul is not the right person for this job. He's not prepared. He's not up for the task at hand. One of the criticisms that they've levied against him, if you were with us last week, Tom tackled this. One of the criticisms that they've levied is he doesn't have letters of recommendation. Now, I don't know what these letters look like. I don't know if they were like in calligraphy with a a seal on it. I don't know if if these people who are trying to undermine Paul forged the letters. I have no idea. But they apparently do have letters. And so I sort of picture these people sitting behind a nice desk with diplomas behind them and going, where are Paul's diplomas? Do you see mine? (laughs) But they say Paul doesn't have letters of recommendation, and we do. If Paul was really up for this, if he was really the person for the job, he would have these letters. And so Paul responds last week uh, by saying, Do we need, as some people do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You ourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. And so Paul responds and he says, I don't need no stinking letter. The fact that you have repented of your sins and the gospel of Christ has taken root in Corinth, the fact that you are growing in grace, the fact that you have experienced the Holy Spirit, that's letter enough for me. The very fact that we are talking about Jesus and you've placed your faith in him is as good as any forged letter that the people who are trying to undermine me might have. And he's going to go on to defend his competence in ministry in verses 4 through 6. So let me read that for us. Uh, Verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's been almost three years now since I took over the college and career ministry. In the winter of 2013, Paul Humphreys, uh, who many of you know, uh, said that God was calling him somewhere else. And around that time, Tom and Mark and the elders asked if I would be willing to take this position. And I... I said yes, and in the back of my mind, maybe not explicitly, but sort of just hovering around in Travisville in my head, I thought, yeah, I pretty much, I pretty much get what it means to be a pastor, and I think I'm, I'm pretty suited for the task, uh, and, and, and I'm, I don't have particularly high self-esteem, so I wasn't like, dang, Travis is awesome, but I was like, yeah, I, I, c- I can do this. I kind of know. Preach good sermons. Know the Bible well. Don't be an idiot. You know, I, yeah, I got this. So the first week, which would have been January of 2014, rolls around, and I spend almost the entire week in meetings with people who have already been serving here, with Paul as he sort of fills me in on what's going on, uh, with people in other ministries at our church, and I get grilled with questions. So what's your plan moving forward? What are you going to get rid of? What are you going to change? Are you going to change the name? Are you going to change the night? What are you going to change in the service? How are you going to integrate our high school seniors? How are you going to integrate the college ministry back to our church? And on and on and on and on. Just hundreds of questions. And I have answers to none of them. And so by the end of the week, I'm going, maybe I'm not as on point as I thought I was, but that's fine. I've got the weekend. I'll figure out the answers and we'll be good. And so... By the next weekend I think it was the second or third week uh, Tom asks if he can sit down with me Tom was the guy who spoke last week uh, And he says, so how you feeling? And I said, man, a lot of questions I don't have answers to But I'll figure it out, it'll be good And he asks, you know, what, what are you planning on doing moving forward? And I basically am like I'm going to preach Colossians Anything else? And I said, no, do I need something else? <laughs> That's kind of what I'm thinking I'm going to do um, And he says, Travis, do you know, do you know what the the job of a pastor is, and I said, preach good sermons. <laughs> and I might I might have dressed it up a little bit more, um, but I realized in that moment if I thought I was ill equipped before, I go, oh crap. You know, I thought I would be up for this, but when he asked me what pastors do, I just said preach good sermons. <laughs> And, he said, and so he walks me through the, the history of, of the word pastor, where it comes from. And in the Greek, it, it basically just means shepherd. And he says, so Travis, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk through uh, the New Testament and see sort of the, see the standards that it lays for the shepherd of God's people. Someone who is going to shepherd God's people, as a pastor should, walk through it, come back next week or the week after, tell me what the standards are. So I'm, I'm going through the New Testament and looking at what the expectations are. And I feel less and less and less equipped because preach good sermons is a good start. Uh, but, But it also includes being willing to counsel people through difficult circumstances and through loss and tragedy. And it also includes being willing to call people on their crap and not being so worried with what they think of you that you withhold the truth from them. That's terrifying, BT dubs. Uh, And so I go, okay, yeah, that's sounding bad. And then then you you look at what it it means to to serve the way Christ serves, which is to pour yourself out for people, which means that this is not a job that I can just turn off when I go home. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't ever turn this job off. It, It never stops for me. I'm always worried about what's coming next and where God's leading us and how I can spur people on towards holiness and how I can call people to repentance and, and, and where people are in their faith and how they can get further. It, it doesn't stop any more than a shepherd who lives with his flock ever stops being the shepherd. And by the end of my research into what it means to be a pastor, I found myself in a pew in Sacred Heart Church in downtown Tampa during their open prayer hour saying, God, I don't know what I'm doing, and you picked the wrong person because I have no idea what to do. I am entirely insufficient for the task at hand. And and the reality is that I think it's not just pastors that feel this way, it's not just me that feels this way. Maybe you just moved out of high school and you've sat through your first two college classes and you're going, What did I get myself into? I am entirely insufficient for the task at hand. And you'll definitely feel that way if you ever try to deal with the administration at USF. You'll say, I would rather just drop out of college and never get my education. Or maybe you find yourself in the beginning, first few years of your marriage, and you're going, man, the honeymoon is over, and I feel it, that it is over, and I have no idea what to do. Or maybe you've graduated from college and you've started your first job that gives you a salary and doesn't pay you hourly and has benefits. And you go, I am in over my head. But the question of sufficiency is what Paul turns his attention to. Whether he is up the task that God called him to, which is to be the apostle to the Gentiles and the shepherd and the leader of the Corinthian church. So in verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence That we have through Christ toward God. And and what we need to recognize is that this is coming immediately after he said to the Corinthians. You are our letter of recommendation. Delivered by Christ. Paul is essentially saying I am confident towards God because I have seen Christ's work in you. And in the work of Christ I have confidence before God that I am doing what I ought to be doing. And can stand with my head held We should pay very close attention here because Paul has plenty of things that by worldly standards he ought to be confident in. Uh, I mean, you've seen in the book of Acts, if you've read the book of Acts, you've seen the response to Paul's preaching. that, That people are converted and that they repent and they're baptized and churches spring up. Paul could be confident before God in his ability to speak and his eloquence. Although the Corinthians don't think he's particularly eloquent. We know that Paul is a Pharisee among Pharisees, uh, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, who is one of, one of the, the most revered rabbis during his day. There's Jewish institutes to this day called the Gamaliel Institute, so influential was this man. Paul could attempt, at least, to be confident before God in his education and his wisdom and his skills in debate and discussion. But that's not the ground of his confidence before God. The confidence that Paul has before God, he has through Christ and Christ alone. I listened to a uh, podcast a few weeks ago and it was on evangelism and the, the person who was discussing evangelism talked about a conversation he had with a friend of his or a student on a university campus and he had asked her do you, do you believe in God and she said yeah do you believe in heaven and hell and she said yeah are you a christian no i am spiritual but not religious which is the battle cry of Everyone in our day and age And he said well you know if, if you were to die And stand before God do you think you would go to Heaven or hell since you believe in both And she said yeah And he said why and she said well I'm, You know I've worked in the peace corps And I've uh, served at the soup kitchen And she started to list her, uh, her good deeds And the things that she felt would uh, Give her sufficiency to stand before God In confidence and listen I used to hear This from pastors and think that it was just A Christian stereotype that there's Nobody who actually thinks this way And I'm totally wrong in that, or I was totally wrong in that, because there are still people. And perhaps you find yourself here because a friend dragged you uh, or because you're just looking for something to do on a Sunday night other than eat checkers. And (laughs) I miss checkers in Uganda so much. Uh, But but perhaps you find yourself here and you would say the same thing. I believe in God, I believe in heaven, I believe in hell. And I will stand in confidence before God on the platform I have built of my own good works. Here's the problem with that is that in Psalms 103, the psalmist asked this rhetorical question, O oh Lord, if you were to count our iniquities, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. I mean, he doesn't mean for you to sing the song and answer it, but I think in our mind we, we can consider that this is a very valid question. If we are measuring our good works or our ability to stand before God in confidence, if it is dependent upon our goodness and God is infinitely good, the greatest of all possible goods, the highest of all possible goods, then should you live as long as the earth itself has been in existence, you would never amass enough good works to build a platform upon platform us to stand. You would never amass enough confidence in your goodness to stand before a God who is himself perfection. If the Lord were to count our iniquities, yours and mine, who could stand? The answer is Nobody. There is no confidence before God if our confidence is in our own works and our own goodness and our own righteousness. But Paul will go on in 2 Corinthians and he will say, thanks be to God that in Christ he does not count men's sins against them. This is the heart of the Christian gospel is that nobody could stand with confidence before God if he counted their sins against them. But in Christ, he has chosen not to do that by punishing the sins of men on the cross and canceling the record of debt so that if you are in Christ, you can say the same thing with Paul, that our confidence towards God passes through Christ. We pray a lot in our service, more than a lot of churches do, and I don't say that to gloat. But you will notice that any time we end a prayer here at College and Career Ministry, we end it in Jesus' name. And that is not simply sort of a leftover bit of liturgy or tradition. We don't just kind of say that because that's what we grew up saying. It's because if we are to offer these prayers in any sort of confidence, it is the confidence that has been given to us through Christ if we were to approach the throne of grace, if we were to approach God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, it must be done through Christ and in his, his name, or it cannot be done. Because if he were to count our sins, who could stand? Thanks be to God that he does not count our sins against us if we are in Christ. The great theologian and reformer Martin Luther, he uh, died in his 50s, uh, which is uh, not as long as the average person lives in our day and age, and didn't plan on dying when he traveled uh, to a local village because a family had been torn apart by a political feud. Uh, he got there, he worked with the family to be reconciled, but he fell ill. And it became apparent that he would not survive this sickness that he had contracted. And so on his deathbed, there was a man with him caring for him, and he, has, he asked Luther a question. He said, Are you prepared To die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine that you have taught. Luther taught that there was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And Luther's response, it's the last thing he ever said that was recorded. As he said, yes, we are beggars. This much is true. Because... Luther understood what Paul is saying here, that if he is to face God, it must be in Christ, or he will not have the strength to stand. Apart from Christ, he is a beggar at best, but in Christ, he is a slave made a son and can stand before the Father boldly through the work of the Son. So Paul says this is the confidence that we have towards God. It is through Christ. And he goes on. He's addressed his confidence. He moves to his competence. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So Paul comes to the question of his competence. Are you qualified for this? And Paul's answer is kind of back and forth. He says, yes, we are qualified. We are sufficient for the task at hand. But not because we in and of ourselves are sufficient. But because God has made us sufficient for the task. There's a pastor here named John Weaver. Who uh, some of you may know. I love John Weaver. One of the scariest people I've ever met. Uh, Not because he's done anything, but just because he strikes me as the kind of person that were he to snap could just kill me with his bare hands. (laughs) But there was one Sunday where, uh, it wasn't a Sunday, it was one week in the office where, this was two or three years ago, and he walked in and he said, Travis, how are the ladies treating you? (laughs) And I said, funny you should ask, John Weaver, because nothing has changed since the last time you asked me that. They're not treating me at all. (laughs) And he said, get up out of your chair. (laughs) So I moved because I don't want him to kill me with his bare hands. And he sits down, he pulls up eHarmony, and he pulls out his credit card. And he drops $150 to give me a year subscription to eHarmony. <laughs> and so, so I go, okay. And he says, all right, fill this stuff out. So there's all these questions, and I'm, I'm just going to begin with the end in mind and tell you eHarmony doesn't really work after a year. Uh, but there's all these questions that they ask you because they have this personality profile that matches you with your soulmate. Um, and so at least at the time that I did this a few years ago, they would ask you to rate yourself on a spectrum of things like, how attractive do you think you are? And John is sitting over my shoulder, and I don't know if he's watching me or not, but it says, how attractive do you think you are? And two things go through my mind. One, John is watching. And if I rate myself really high, John's going to think I'm really full of myself. Two, I mean, I do kind of dress like a homeless person, and, and, and I could stand to work out a little bit more and you know i don't really care that much about my appearance so i give myself like a two or a three unattractive so then the next question how attractive do you want your partner to be that's a trick question <laughs> but i know john is over my shoulder and i go well, i don't want John to think that i'm like vain or anything or that i'm i'm superficial so two <laughs> next question how intelligent are you well, I mean, I got I my undergrad, but a lot of people have that. And I, I'm having trouble with my master's like a three. So I fill this whole thing out, and I get my list of matches. And I get matched with the weirdest people I've ever seen in my whole life. Just bizarre people. I get matched with one girl who doesn't have any pictures of herself. There are no pictures. The only pictures on there are pictures of three-headed cobras. <laughs> Those are her profile pictures. <laughs> So I go to John, and I'm like, John, this is not working at all. I'm mean, getting <laughs> Cobra people. Could just be the devil on eHarmony. I don't know. And, and he, so he apparently wasn't watching from over my shoulder. He was on his phone or something. He says, well, what did you answer the questions like? And I told him, and he says, you've got to sell yourself, Travis. You sold yourself short. You have to convince people that you are equipped for the task of being a good boyfriend. And I said, well, I definitely didn't do that because I gave myself like a one in everything. <laughs> But it's, it's the same with a job interview. Nobody fills out their resume trying to convince the employer that they suck at everything. They are trying to sell themselves as being proficient and competent for the task that they are called to. And it's incredible to me that Paul's competency is in question, and he doesn't give himself a 10 on anything. And he doesn't include his education or anything. He says we're sufficient but not in ourselves. I'm not sufficient for the task at hand. God has made me sufficient. But there is nothing in and of myself that is equipped for what I have been called to do. Listen, if you are a Christian in here, I want you to consider just for a moment the inconceivable glory of the most mundane things in the Christian life to share your faith with a friend who is not a Christian. You are going to somebody who is entirely dead in their trespasses, and you are telling them of the good news that the triune God of the universe has hatched a rescue plan to uh, free them from the bondage and the tyranny of sin and death, and that God the Son has taken on human form, incarnate, and offered himself up on their behalf. That is a glorious thing. If you are sufficient to that task, then I would love to meet you. Because I am certainly not sufficient to the task of proclaiming something so incredible. Or or something so simple as putting to death sin in your life. Consider how inconceivably radical that is. That you have been born dead in your trespasses and made alive in Christ. And have been called to walk in holiness even as the Son of God is holy. If you think you're up for that, you're insane. You are not up for that. I I consider this every week. My job is to open up the inspired and trustworthy word of God and to proclaim it to you in a way that makes sense. I am not up for that. I'm stupid. I am not sufficient to the task at hand. And if Paul is insufficient, you better believe Travis Lowe from Florida who lives alone with his cat in Seminole Heights is not sufficient. (laughs) No. None of us are sufficient to even the most basic things in the Christian life. God makes us sufficient. In the earliest era of the church, there was a man named Augustine. You may know him as St. Augustine. One of the most brilliant minds that the Lord has ever seen fit to produce. And he entered into a debate with a man named Pelagius. And Pelagius basically said this, God calls us not to sin. But if we are born sinners, then God asks of us something that we can't do, and God is not fair. Therefore, we are not born sinners. That's the the long story short of what he said. And Augustine entered into this debate with him, just affirming the fact that we are insane. Our mothers have conceived us, which is what David says. But he offers this statement, and it's pretty much unanimous, whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant or an Eastern Orthodox or whatever. Everybody agrees that Augustine brought a hurtin' to Pelagius. But his basic argument is summarized in this one sentence from Augustine. He says to God, he says, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. God calls us to be holy, and we are insufficient ourselves to do it. Give us the power to do what you've asked us to. He says, be holy even as I am holy. And he gives us the power to do it. Not because we can do it in and of ourselves, but because he will make us sufficient to the task. God, command whatever you will, and then give me the power to do it. This is what Paul has said. God has called him to this task, and I cannot do it. He says, so God makes me competent to do it. And the same is true of you and I as Christians, as it was of Paul. We are not sufficient to anything in the Christian life. Thanks be to God that the Christian life is not meant to be lived in splendid isolation alone, but that we have the helper in the Holy Spirit, and we have the body of Christ to spur us on. So he says, We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. So God made Paul sufficient to this task, that he would be a minister of the new covenant. When, When I was in Uganda, I was doing pastor's training with a group called Alarm, African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. And we spent one week teaching systematic theology from creation to revelation. And it was 10 hours a day of solid teaching, and I was bored listening to myself, but they ate it up, and one of the things that I was asked to teach was the covenants, because here's one of the things that is so distinctive about the God whom we serve, is he is one who makes promises, and he makes them in the form of covenants, these binding agreements between God and a people group, and there are always terms to the covenants, or often terms, if you do this, then I will bless you, If you keep my commandments, then I will prosper you. But then there are times where God makes covenants with people that are unconditional, where he simply says, I will bless you. Independent of anything you do or whether or not you do what you ought to, this is my covenant with you. God always makes it with a people group, and he makes it through one person who is the mediator. So his covenant with creation passes through Adam for everyone who will come after him. He makes a covenant with the nation of Israel through Abraham and all of his descendants. He makes the covenant again with Israel through Moses for all of the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. He makes the covenant with David for all of his descendants. And so you see God making a covenant with one man on behalf of many. Paul says, I am a minister of the new covenant. So we must ask the question, in the new covenant, what are the terms? Unfortunately, Jesus tells us, this is the blood, and this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant is salvation. And who is the mediator of the new covenant? It's Jesus. And who is the people group of the new covenant? It is men and it is women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every period of human history from Christ onward. Those are the covenant people. It's you and I here in Tampa, Florida. It's brothers and sisters in Gulu, Uganda. It's the Christians in uh, Glasgow, Scotland uh, that we will soon be partnering with. It's the people of God from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every nationality. And the covenant is mediated by the Son of God himself. And Paul says, I am a minister of that. He asks a question in chapter 2, verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? He answers in chapter 3. No one is sufficient for these things. For something as glorious as the salvation that Christ has won for us. But he makes us sufficient. So we move now to something that we do every single week as a ministry. As we move into the time of communion. Let me just remind you. Of, of the inconceivable reality of what is happening here. Very often in, in the ancient Near East, when a covenant was made, it was confirmed by a meal. A covenant was made and the people would sit down together and they would share a meal as a sign that they are bound together by a promise. And week in and week out, if you are a Christian, you come to the table of the Lord and that is a sign and a reminder that you are bound by God's eternal promise that the blood of the Son has been poured out so that you can approach God in confidence and so that he will make you competent for the life that he has called you to. So if you're a Christian, we give you this time now to examine yourself, to make sure you're walking well with God, that you're not in conflict with a brother or sister in this room or in this church or in the church at large. And if you have rectified those things, uh, then we would invite you to come up and grab the bread and the grape juice Jason's going to lead us in communion. If you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure, and you're maybe thinking these things over in your head about whether you, you think that you would like to be a Christian, I would love to talk with you after service, but we'd ask that you sit this out. Can I pray for us? And then we'll move into a time of communion. Father, it is a, an inconceivable glory that you would bring us together today to sit under your word, uh, to approach you boldly in prayer, uh, to come to the table in communion. And God, I pray that we would never lose the, the majesty and the mystery of what takes place here on Sunday nights. Familiarity can breed complacency, God. And, and after a year of Sundays, Lord, we can lose the awe of what takes place. Lord, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Restore to us the just the glory of of what is taking place so far from being mundane. God, it is is incredible. God, I pray that you lead us now to the table. Lord, that you continue to lead us as we move into worship. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.